Praise the one, the risen Son of God. You know, as we move to this portion of our service called preaching or the sermon, one of the things I think it's important to remember is that this time that we're about to enter into is not merely informational. So maybe this is a word to the diligent note takers even. It's not merely informational. A sermon preaching is at its core doxological, meaning that it is an act of worship. It is worship to preach. It is worship to listen to preaching. And so I hope that as we go into this period of the service, that we will see it with the same kind of energy and vigor and mental engagement that we have when we sing these songs of praise to the Lord. Because we know that one of the ways that we praise God most, worship God best, is when we hear and heed his word. We have this risen son speaking to us in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the premier places in all of the Bible where the Son of God conveys to us what his will is for his people. What he desires for those who bear his name. Those who are of the way. Those who are Christians. Those who are followers of Jesus. And so in a real way right now we are coming before the throne of Jesus. And we're bowing before him. And we're saying teach me Christ. Teach me Lord Teach me to obey you. Teach me to trust you. Teach me to follow you all the way from this point in my life to your kingdom. When it comes in all of its fullness at its consummation and Christ reigns and the knowledge of God fills the earth like the waters covered the seas. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we come to Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 to 48. If you'll go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 5, <clears throat> verses 43 to 48. I've got this light, annoying cough that I'm battling. So every once in a while, you'll hear that. I hope that uh, you can just kind of pass over it as I pass over the train frequently in my own mind. And you have to too, I guess. So Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. That's where we've come to today. And we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a good bit now. And the Sermon on the Mount essentially is Matthew 5 through 7. It's these three chapters, and so uh, we have to understand this passage of Scripture within the context of the Gospel of Matthew as a whole, but what we've done is we've taken this section of the Gospel of Matthew and given it special treatment. We're, we're doing a, a series where we are going through just this portion of the text, and this has precedence throughout the history of the Christian church. Throughout the history of the church, the Sermon on the Mount has held a very high place among Christians in terms of its, its instructional value and in terms of it giving us such a nutshell understanding of what Jesus's intentions are for us and what it means to follow him, what it means to be a citizen of the king's kingdom. That's what we have in this sermon. And we come now to verses 43 to 48. And just by way of introduction to these verses, I want to start by drawing your attention to a few ways in which today's passage is climactic. So we reach a bit of a climax today as we come to verses 43 to 48. And I think it's climactic in three ways or for three reasons. First, we reach the end of a section. 
For, the la- for, for a number of sermons now, we've been in a section that extends from verses 21 to 48. And this entire section builds on what Jesus says in verses 17 to 20. So go there, chapter 5, and look at those verses quickly, if you will. Verses 17 to 20. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then there's this verse, which bounces us into, from this, it kind of acts as a bit of a trampoline into everything that we read from verses 21 to 48. It says this in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? What is the righteousness that deals with the fact that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? And it's everything that Jesus has been saying from verses 21 to 48. And in these verses, he gives us six illustrations or six examples of how this works itself out, this upholding of the law, this fulfilling by Christ, and this surpassing righteousness and what it looks like. So today we come to the sixth example, the final example or illustration of these. So in that way, today's passage is climactic. So just a, a couple of things that I think we should draw attention to, maybe by way of application that we've seen so far. As we've gone through verses 21 to 48, one of the things that we have seen is that God's word can be twisted. That is exactly what we've seen time and time again with the scribes and Pharisees, is they twist, they pervert, they distort God's word. They rework it. And we need to understand that this is a human tendency in every generation. That people all over the world, all across time, have attempted to take what has been given and to twist it. Remember when we were in the Gospel of John? And John, uh, Jesus said, this is how I glorify the Father, by doing precisely his works, what he sent me to do, by speaking not of myself, but by saying only that which the Father gave me to speak. In other words, even the Son understood that his role was simply to convey only that which the Father had given him. And the same is true of all of those who call Jesus Lord. Our responsibility is to convey only that which was given to us by God. Not to twist it or distort it or pervert it. And that is what we've seen through these verses. Is that real human tendency to do that to the word of God. Another thing that we have seen as we've gone through the various interpretations of these passages. Is we've seen the danger of superficial readings of scripture. Whether it is the, the taking of the Sermon of the Mount out, uh, Sermon on the Mount out of its context and using it as sort of an ethical code for society, 
or coming to specific passages in the Sermon on the Mount and saying that those passages rule out military or police or rule out even defending yourself or defending those whom you love, or so on and so forth, giving to anyone who would ask you such that even if someone comes to you and asks for something that you know will destroy them, you do it anyway because that's what the text says. So we've seen that. As we've gone through this path, as we've gone through these verses, we've seen the danger of a superficial reading of Scripture. And what I mean by that is a, a superficial reading of Scripture is, is always one that fails to do two things. On the one hand, fails to read Scripture in its context. must always be read within its context. It's near context. It's far context. It's canonical context. All of Scripture coming to bear on it. And that leads to the second thing, and that is interpreting scripture with scripture. You can't read any passage of the Bible without reading it in light of other passages that speak to that same theme. And if you have passages that are clearer, more obvious in a particular theme, those passages are to take precedence over those that are less clear. These are basic principles of interpretation. Basic, as we, as we say, hermeneutical principles. Principles for understanding how to come at God's word. But we've seen as we've gone through these verses, that a superficial reading of the Bible can lead us in all kinds of wrong places where we miss the mark of what God is teaching us. So, going back to the main idea here, one way in which this passage today is climactic is that it comes to the end of this section. A second way in which this passage is climactic is that we reach the height and depth of righteousness. Remember all along Jesus has said in verse 20 that that our righteousness is to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And what what, what Jesus gives us in verses 43 to 48 is the very high point, or we could even say the core, the center of righteousness. It's one word, it's love. Everything that Jesus has been saying from verses 21 all the way till we get to this passage is climbing a mountain. And now it's as if we have reached the peak of that mountain and the idea that is flashing at us, that is glaring us in the face, is love. It all begins with love. Everything aims at love. So in Matthew 22, Jesus says that all the prophets and the law depend on two love commandments. Love the Lord your God with every part of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. And we've seen this already, right? Think about it. When he taught on murder, Jesus essentially was saying, love your neighbor. Because you don't murder your neighbor. You're not angry with your neighbor. You don't insult your neighbor. So at the heart of not murdering is loving your neighbor. What about adultery? When you commit adultery, with, when, you, when you sleep with another man's wife, you do a, an injustice to that man and to that woman. When you are married and you go outside of your marriage sexually, you do an injustice to the person to whom you're married. It is ultimately a sin against love. It's not so much murder. It's not so much adultery. It's a failure to love. And that is the case also with divorce and with truthfulness and oath-taking, with retaliation. All of these teachings that we have found over these weeks boil down to this one central truth, which is love. So what is love? 
I think the Bible gives us such, the, such a clear definition of what love is. Matthew 7, 12, doing to others as you would have them do to you. God has placed in every single person a natural desire to survive, a natural desire to be comfortable, a natural desire to avoid evil, that which does not feel good, that which does not make us happy, and to pursue our happiness. This is a natural part of being human. We pursue that which contributes to our own happiness. We oftentimes think that the wrong things make us happy, so we fail to do this. But we do that not because we don't pursue our own happiness. We do that because we pursue that which we think makes us happy. Whether it's suicide or drugs or sex addiction or whatever, we think those things make us happy and so we pursue them. Every human being pursues his or her own good as he or she sees it. And that's precisely what Jesus tells us we ought to do with others. We do unto them as we would do, have them do unto us. That's the heart of love. And so if we think about this as being the climax, one of the things that I want to get you to consider is without love, what else really matters in your Christian life? I mean, think about that. Maybe as you think about living out your Christian life, we come to this climax today, we come to love. Maybe... There are a lot of things that you put your focus on as a Christian. A lot of spiritual disciplines. A lot of ways that you measure the health of your Christian life. Maybe it's by the things you know. Maybe it's by the feelings that you feel. Maybe it's by the intentions of your heart or whatever the case might be. But what we're told here is that love is the height and the depth and the center So here's what I would say. Let love be the test that you give yourself as we leave here today. Let love be the means by which you examine two things. One, your spiritual condition, and two, your spiritual health. Because here's the thing. Some people think that they are Christians. And if they would just simply ask the question, do I love? Do I have love in my heart? They would quickly realize that they are, in fact, not a Christian. And some of us who think that we are growing and maturing in Christ because we can point to all of these various things that are going on in our lives, yet when we look at our hearts and we see the coldness and the deadness towards other people, I think we are confronted with God's truth. And we are meant to say, maybe I'm being deceived into thinking that these things are primary. When all the while, I care nothing for love. So that's the second way that this passage is climactic. It's the end of a section, number one. And number two, it it gets to the heart of the matter, the height and the depth, love. The third way in which today's passage, verses 43 to 48, is climactic is that it holds out before us God's standard. And you could say it this way. It holds out before us that goal which we should pursue. And it is nothing less than perfection. That is the word that we get in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a climax. That's a height. 
That's the standard of God. That's the goal to which all things move. And we've seen this already, right? Think about it. When you come to the topic of murder and you are told it's not just about going out and killing somebody and not killing somebody, that it's about not even being angry with somebody in your heart, immediately we're confronted with our own sinfulness. Immediately we are confronted with the fact, man, I'm a murderer. Everybody who listened to that sermon, including the person who preached it, should be saying in our hearts, I am a murderer. The same is true as we come to the topic of adultery. To look at another person with lustful eyes is to commit adultery. We're also told that we are to have pure hearts. Pure hearts undefiled by tainted intentions and self-centered motives. This is what we're told. This is what Jesus holds out for us in the Sermon on the Mount and says, be this. So we've already encountered perfection. Now Jesus just says it explicitly. You must, Christian, follower of Jesus, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this pushes us to Christ because that's the only place we can run at this point. When we read words like this, we realize one thing to be true, and that is that none of us is in fact perfect, that there's only one perfect one, and that's Jesus, that he's perfect. And it's his righteousness that stands in our stead when we die. That stands in our stead even now. The Bible says the wrath of God abides upon the sons of disobedience. It abides upon the unrighteous. Which means that even now it is only Christ's perfect righteousness that shields us from the wrath of God. And that will be the only thing that shields us from the wrath of God in that day. God gives us Jesus' perfection so that when he sees us, he sees perfect Jesus Isn't that amazing? When God sees you, Christian, he sees perfect Jesus. That's why we sing praises to Jesus. That is why we long to be with Jesus is because that he is the one through whom God sees us. And God takes away all of our sins because Christ bore them on the cross. So we are pushed to Christ for his righteousness. But here's the thing. Christ actually enables us to participate in his righteousness even in this life. Isn't that incredible? That it's not just this kind of, my account now has the word righteousness written in bold red letters at the top of the page and that's it. I'm going to heaven. It's more than that. It's so much deeper than that. It's so much, real, so much more real and functional and practical than that. Because not only does God write in big Bold red letters at the top of the account of our lives, righteous on account of Jesus. He also takes and puts the righteousness of that very Jesus into our hearts. So that we begin to manifest that Christ-like love and character and and all of those things that, that define Christ. We begin to live that out. We begin to see his character realized in our own lives. We begin to see his perfection. Although imperfectly so we begin to see the perfection of Jesus manifesting itself in beautiful ways in the lives of the people of God. So it's climactic in that third way in that we reach God's standard, his goal that he puts before all of us Christians. So 
I want to just reflect for a moment on how this, before we even get into the passage for today, this is kind of a pre-sermon sermon, but before we even get into the passage for today, I want you to consider this. If God holds out for us, if Jesus holds out for us, that the standard of God, that the goal to which, the goal which we should pursue, the, the target at which we should aim, if that's what Jesus holds out before us, then I would submit to you this. There is no place for an I have arrived mentality among Christians. And that says two things to us. There are two things that happen in the life of a Christian. One of those is sloth and one of those is pride. We live the Christian life and we begin to kind of get a little comfortable in the Christian life. God gives us some victories. You know, we, we look to our left and we see people doing things we don't do. Hmm. We look to our right and we see people who are engaged in behaviors, who have particular affections or have particular attitudes that we don't have. And we begin to think, that's great. I don't have that. You can't look to your left or your right without thinking that. It's just natural, but here's what happens. We begin to then realize as Christ is perfecting us, maturing us, growing us, we begin to be puffed up in our pride. And I think what this text tells us is that in truth, we should all realize that this standard, this goal, not a single one of us has reached it. So we're left. Our pride being torn down, which leaves us in one place. How did this Sermon on the Mount begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Coming to the end of yourself. But the second, I think, is the bigger problem in the church frequently, and that is sloth. I think that a lot of Christians think that as long as you're kind of getting by, as long as the Christian life's going okay, as long as you're doing a few things for your neighbor, as long as you're telling someone about Jesus every once in a while or you read the word every little bit, yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm making it. I'm making it. And I think that a passage like this that we're coming to today, verses 43 to 48, as we come to this perfection, it tells us that we should always be striving. It tells us this. The Christian life is a lot of work. The Christian life requires a ton of effort, a ton of exertion. Read the Apostle Paul. Read how he describes his Christian life in his letters, the kind of exertion and intensity and focus and battling and mortifying that characterized his life. That's what every Christian is called to because every Christian is called to perfection. As we find on the mouth, from the mouth of our Lord Jesus here today. So it's climactic for all of these reasons. And that maybe is just kind of setting up for us how we are to then come to this passage. So let's open it up and read it. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. <clears throat> this is God's word. You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. His son 
his son. And sins reign on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So let's pray to the Lord, ask for his help this morning. Help to preach his word and help to understand his word as we hear it. Let's pray. Our Father, our Father, our heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. Father, what would we be without Jesus? Where would we be without Jesus? Where would we be without his perfect life and his obedient death? Where would we be without his perfect sin-covering blood? Where would we be without his precious, powerful Holy Spirit who dwells in each of us? Where would we be without his intercession at your right hand on our behalf, moment by moment, as a sympathizing high priest? And where will we be? Where would we be if it were not for his coming to raise us from the dead one day and bring us to glory? God, when we read of your wrath being poured out on the world in Revelation, And we read of the carnage and the violence and the justice and vengeance which you will carry out on this world. And we realize that you have taken away your wrath from us. God, we are amazed at your love, at your kindness, your mercy, your grace. And so, God, this morning we just want to celebrate that as we consider your character, as we consider the commands of your son, as we seek to evidence your likeness every day in our lives, God, by your spirit, by your grace. Help us, Lord. We all need to grow. Father, we are an undone people. We are just like Isaiah. We are broken and undone, and we have unclean lips. We have unclean ears. We have unclean eyes. We have unclean hearts and unclean feet and hands. God, we are sinful We confess that before your face, but we know that you are faithful to cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we confess our sins. And so we do, God, and we ask that you will help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness and that we will be filled by you even today with that which you have prepared before us, before for us, before the foundation of the world. God, we love you. We pray that we would love you now through listening and preaching in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for the sermon this morning, you might be thinking the second sermon this morning, but the title for the sermon this morning is Loving Like Father. You can go ahead and put up that slide. Loving Like Father. And there are four things that I think we need to see in order to kind of open up this passage and see what Jesus is saying to us here. The first is a cause to hate. The second, a command to love. Third, a character to emulate. And finally, a commonality to transcend. That, I think, is what we find as we go through these 
verses here at the end of Matthew chapter 5. So let's look at the first, a cause to hate. A cause to hate. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. (laughs) You've read that one, right? Hate your enemy. No, you haven't read that one. It's not there. It's not in there anywhere. It sounded like Dr. Seuss, but it's not. It is not in there anywhere. Time and time again, we have seen over and over how the religious teachers and leaders of Jesus' day had twisted and perverted God's word, the Old Testament. We talked about that at the very beginning. And up to this point, it's been a little more subtle as we've gone through murder and adultery and divorce and oaths. As we've gone through all of these various topics, it's been a little subtle. There's been a subtle little tweak of God's law or God's word. But what we find when we come to this passage is a just a complete perversion, a complete overhaul, if you will. It's one of the ways that we know when we come to this passage that when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said that he's referring not to the law, but he is referring to the interpretation of the law at the time. In other words, those people who are sitting listening to Jesus as he sits down and as he teaches, this is what they're hearing. All these, you have heard that it was said. That is what they're hearing. And they have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Old Testament text in the background, it's just like uh, when they pervert the word, they start with the word. And what's the text in the background? It's Leviticus 19.18. This is what it says. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So from that, they get, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You're left scratching your head. I know, I was too. I think anyone who reads this would be left. And there's a host of reasons why they could pick passages out in the Old Testament. God's destruction of the Canaanites, for example. The imprecatory Psalms calling down God's judgment on those who hate God and his people and so forth. To pull these things together and twist them out of their context. And, and, and pull together this belief, this view that the neighbors are the ones you love. And the enemies are the ones you hate. The problem here with their interpretation is really twofold. First, they have taken away the words as yourself. Notice that. The text in Leviticus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But as it's quoted by the scribes and the Pharisees, they say this, you shall love your neighbor, period. As one commentator puts it, a text that deals with how to love as yourself A text that deals with how to love, the manner of love, has been subtly turned into a text on who to love. Do you see how they've done that? The text is about loving your neighbor. How? As yourself. They've taken the passage, gotten rid of as yourself, and instead of it being a passage that tells us the manner, it tells us who. Love these and not these. The second problem here is this. To the positive teaching, you shall love your neighbor, they have added a negative inference. You shall not love, or even more, you shall hate your enemy. 
So if you shall love your neighbor, well, there's a special kind of favor that you show your neighbor. The rest you can just simply hate. So this is their attitude. See, God says you only have to love your neighbor. That's the kind of thing we've seen all along. This is the kind of interpretive, these are the sorts of interpretive reworkings and deceitful devices that we find among these scribes and Pharisees. See, God says you only have to love your neighbor. But the problem is that Leviticus 19, that text in Leviticus 19 is in a context where God is speaking to all of Israel as a congregation. The whole congregation of the people of Israel. God is speaking to Israel itself. And so enemies and strangers are not in view. He's talking simply to the people as a people. And he's saying, love one another as yourself. So one should not use this passage to exclude the same behavior towards those outside of this community. And that's precisely what these scribes and Pharisees are doing. And in fact, we find God's will for the treatment of enemies elsewhere in the Old Testament. So listen to these verses. This is a picking and choosing of what they want to go with in the Bible. Does that sound familiar at all? Picking and choosing what we, des- what we wish to obey, what we wish to believe. So this is what it says in Exodus 23, 4 to 5. If you meet your enemy's ox, even down to their animals, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey, Going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You're supposed to take care of your enemy's donkey. You're supposed to take care of your enemy's ox and bring it back to him if he loses it. You imagine that awkward interaction and exchange when you get back to the door of your enemy and you've brought him back his ox and this guy hates you? That's precisely what we're told in God's word. Well, they, they didn't really care about this passage. They wanted to pervert the other passage at the expense of these. Listen to Proverbs twenty five twenty one. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. That's not hate. And if he is thirsty... Give him water to drink. Paul quotes this in Romans 12. And it is as Jesus teaches in the parable of the Good Samaritan. In the Good Samaritan, we have a man who comes up to Jesus and said, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives this parable of the unlikely one who actually stops to help this man who's been beaten and left for dead. It's not his own people to come by who are part of his own people, religious leaders actually. They don't stop. It's the Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. This went back to a time about 700 years before Christ where the Assyrians had come in and taken over Israel and they began to kind of, the Assyrians began to intermarry and intermingle with these Israelites and there was sort of a, a, a the, the, the breeding, the interbreeding between these two peoples and those were the Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. But in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus makes clear that anyone who is in need is your neighbor. Even if that person is hostile to you. Even if that person hates you. Even if you've been taught all your life to hate and abominate that person. Jesus says that person is your neighbor. 
even if they are your enemy. So what we have here in this just little quote from the scribes and Pharisees, this little reworking of the law, what we have here is a cause, a reason, a grounds for hatred. A cause or a reason to hate. Because a person is technically an enemy, I can hate them. It's fine. Just as they did with oaths. Remember that. As long as I don't say these words, oaths don't mean anything. It's nothing. I can deceive. As long as I don't do this, I can, I can divorce as long as I do the certificate. You see the kind of legalism that pervaded everything that these scribes and Pharisees did. And here's the main thing we need to see. These scribes and Pharisees are merely doing what all sinful human beings do. It is easy, as we've gone through this, it is easy to put the scribes and Pharisees in a little box off to the side and dismiss them. But what we see here is common human sinfulness. I want you to listen to Paul's words in Romans 1 and 3 about human sinfulness. This is what it says. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, heartless, ruthless, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Who's he describing? You. Me. Everybody. He's describing every human being who's ever lived. That the whole world may be held accountable to God. That every mouth may be stopped, he says, as he gets to the end of that list in Romans 3. And then he introduces the gospel. Every human being is under sin. This characterizes the hearts of people. So it is in our fallen nature to find a reason to hate. Gossip, malicious speech, slander, Anger, insults, vendettas, revenge, all of this is a part of everyday human life. We see it in our families. We see it among our friends. We see it everywhere we look. This is humanity. So Christian, I think it's important that you understand this. This propensity is in you. It's in you as a Christian. Even as a Christian, it is in you. It is in all of us. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to understand that this propensity consumes you. It envelops you. It is the life of human beings apart from God. But in Christ, as a citizen of his kingdom, we find a new way. And that's where we go to our second point, which is a command to love. Look at verse 44. A command to love. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One of the things that we discovered early on in the Sermon on the Mount is that Christians are the kind of people who will inevitably have enemies. Now we know that all people have enemies. <coughs> Maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking through in your own life, you're kind of thinking of enemies you might have. People that 
have something against you, people whom you have something against. And maybe that list is pretty short. Maybe there's no one on that list. Or maybe you have a few people in mind right now. We all have enemies, people we don't agree with or don't get along with, or people that we are in kind of a hostile or tense relationship, contentious relationship with. We all have enemies, but especially Christians. Although we are by nature peacemakers, to be a Christian is to invite the hatred of the world. We talked about this when we read that passage from the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We talked about the fact that when light shines in darkness, what happens? That darkness is exposed, as Ephesians says. That darkness is exposed for what it is. And as the darkness is exposed, the light indicts the darkness. It indicts it. It condemns it. And so darkness is left sort of quivering, trying to find another dark place to hide. And it lashes out against the light. So we know that to be a Christian is to invite this kind of response, this kind of hostility. It is to invite enemies. 2 Timothy 3.12, as we read then, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is part and parcel of what it is to be a Christian. And the question is, what will our attitude and actions be towards those who can genuinely be called our enemies? The Pharisee says... Hate him. Jesus says, love him. These are worlds apart. These are opposite ends of the spectrum, but we are hearing the words of our king. This is what you've heard, but I, the king, the Lord, say to you this, love them. So how do we do this? How do we love our enemies? One way that Jesus gives us here is to pray for them. So listen to this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He uh, was killed under the Nazis, uh, under, under Hitler's regime there in Germany. He was a Christian pastor. This is what he said. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy. Listen to this image. It's, it's beautiful. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy Stand by his side and plead for him to God. You imagine the imagery there. Going to the person who hates you, whom you're supposed to hate, grabbing them by the hand, standing side by side with them as a friend, and looking up into heaven on their behalf and praying to God for them. One of the reasons, one of the ways that we're able to do this is through mercy. Mercy is to pity someone. It is to look at someone's life and to see it with sympathy. It is to see it as, as a life that is being lost, a life that is being wasted. And the way that we have mercy for people is by realizing that God has seen us that way. Do you know when you were converted to Christ, what happened? God looked at your life and he saw where you were headed he saw how you were enslaved. He saw the darkness that had consumed your heart and your life. And he reached out to you in his pity, in his sympathy, in his mercy. And he picked you up in love. It is that same pity that God calls us to have for our enemies. John Stott says this. It is impossible to pray for someone... 
without loving him. And impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. Have you ever experienced this as a Christian? Someone you hate. I mean, you just hate. You hate them. You, you have intense anger for them in your heart. And you're praying through it. And you're asking God to forgive you for that bitterness and that anger. And you begin to pray for that person. It is the way to extinguish that anger. To extinguish that hatred. We begin to grow and mature in our love for them. So we pray for them. We also bless them rather than cursing them. We feed them. We give them drink. And in general, as Jesus says in Luke 6, 27, we do good to them. This means doing this. We ask the question, what does this person need? And then we strive to meet that need. Even for those who hate us even for those who would persecute us, who would curse us, who would use us, who would trample on us, who would slander us, who would ruin our reputations, take away our property, even take away our lives. Remember Jesus? Father, forgive them. Remember Stephen? Father, forgive them. As he's being stoned. This is what all Christians are called to. And to live like this is to work out from the cross. At the cross, God reconciled his enemies to himself. Think about that. At the cross, all of those who would trust in Jesus were not yet trusting in Jesus, which means that while we were still sinners, while we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. In other words, it was in our state as being enemies of God that God extended to us this love and mercy and reconciled us to himself, made us at peace with himself while we were still enemies. And this leads us to the next point Jesus makes, which is a character to emulate. So what is God like? What is his character well, obviously, there's much that could be said on this point. But one of those characteristics is that God loves even his enemies. Look at verse 45. We are to love and pray for our enemies. Why? Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. Sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The evil, the good, the just, the unjust. The sun and rain belong to God. And he gives them to mankind indiscriminately. The evil get sun just like the good. The unjust get rain just like the just. And in Luke 6.35, Jesus says, it says, He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Human beings are not grateful to God, as Paul says in Romans 1. That's the primary problem, is that rather than being grateful to God, they exchange the image of the glorious God for idols, for images. They exchange God, the worship of God in his glory, for images of birds and animals and creeping things. They fail to give honor and thanks to God, yet God gives the sun. God gives the rain. Paul and Barnabas Tell the idol-worshiping pagans of Lystra that God gave you, listen to this, rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food 
and gladness. You know, I've often thought about this. I used to think about this a lot in Scotland because it's, it's a very heavy leisure culture over there. <laughs> you know, it's Europe, I guess, is more and more like that. And they think we're all crazy workaholics over here in America. But it's, it's kind of a leisurely culture. And so one of the people, kind of, people really do live for their evenings and their weekends and their holidays. And they get a lot of those and so forth. They really do live for that. And one of the things I used to notice is I would sort of interact with these people. And as Jennifer and I would go downtown to these little festivals, especially at Christmas time. And in August, they would have this very special festival that pretty much takes over the city. People were so happy. People are so filled with gladness and joy, many of whom, most of whom, perhaps in some cases, all of whom care nothing for God. Nothing. Yet, God gives them these things in love. That is the character of our Father. This is what we call common grace. God gives these things indiscriminately to all human beings. And what Jesus is saying is that the reason why we are to love our enemies is because that is the character of our Father. As the Father does, so too ought sons and daughters to do. So loving our enemies is not about finding something lovable in them. Do you know that's why we tend to fail at loving our enemies? It's because for some people... You're trying to find something lovable in them, and it's not working out. You're just not finding anything. You don't have any content. You don't have any lovable content. So there is no object there, at least as far as you can tell, by which to love them. But it's not about finding something lovable in them. Also, loving our enemies is not ultimately about winning them over. It's not a a mere pragmatism. It's not a matter of, I'll love them and they'll soften I'm going to love them until their heart just melts away and they embrace me and they embrace Jesus. That may very well not happen. We don't do this so that that will happen. We hope, but that's not the reason. That's not the ultimate reason that we love. Instead, it is about belonging to the family of God and evidencing the character of our Father. I think we find here another instance of grace and holiness coming together. Think about it this way. It is because of who we are as sons and daughters of God by his grace that we act like sons and daughters of God in holy love for even our enemies. In other words, sonship should immediately draw our mind to God's grace. We've been given sonship by God. We've been made as sons and daughters But as we begin to work out from that, we realize that that entails that we exhibit his holiness, his holy character, his holy love. And so here again, we have grace and holiness perfectly wedded together. I also want you to see that the Greek verb in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father, is frequently translated become, so that you may become sons of your father. And I think that This is what we should take from that. When we love our enemies, we are becoming, think about it that way, we are becoming more and more what we already are. As Christians, we are the children of God. But in a real sense, we are becoming the children of God more and more every day as we evidence 
his holy character, as we evidence his love. And it is this God-like character that leads to the next and final point that Jesus makes, and that is a commonality to transcend. Look at verses 46 to 48 as we finish up this morning. 46 to 48, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The real contrast that we have here in this passage is between the earthly and the heavenly. On the one hand, there is the natural earthly way of loving. What is the natural earthly way of loving? Well, it is to love and care for the needs of your own, to repay good for good. This is normal. This is common. This is found in every square inch of the earth, among every kind of people on the earth. Those who love you, those who show you affection, those who treat you with respect and dignity, those who greet you and say nice things to you, those who say nice things about you, those who expressed interest in what matters to you. To love these people is nothing special. Nothing special. And maybe, maybe this morning you think, man, I got a lot of love in my heart. And then, boom, this passage falls on your life. And you say, hold on a second. I think I just woke a few people up. Uh, you, that... This, just, this passage just falls on your life and you realize, you know, maybe my love is not really what I thought it was. Maybe my love is actually pretty common, pretty earthly, pretty just merely human. Even the most morally questionable kinds of people do this, Jesus says. That's the point he makes. The tax collectors even the lying, stealing, greedy, and disloyal tax collectors, these are Jews who had sold out to the Romans, who basically were extortioners of their own people. They used the Roman tax system to take more money from the people than they were supposed to take so that they could fill their own pockets, and then they would go to the Romans and give them the money. They were disloyal, and they were cheats, and they were liars, and they were hated by the Jews. But Jesus says, even these guys love their own. Even the godless, idol-worshiping Gentiles, even these guys who worship idols and bow down to statues, love their own. But what Christ holds out for his followers is the heavenly. We have the earthly, and Jesus says, but this is the heavenly. We are to transcend what all humans hold in common. We are a heavenly people because we belong to a heavenly father and we must therefore express his heavenly love. That is what Jesus is saying. A love even for those who hate us just as the heavenly father loves those who hate him. And here's why. When we transcend what all humans hold in common, all of the glory goes to God. Because think about it. When you begin to love your enemy, everybody's flabbergasted. Because that doesn't happen. That's not a human thing. There must be something from outside. There must be something above you that is empowering you to love your enemy. And when an entire people, 
when an entire local church and when an entire church in, an, in, a, in a country or in a region of the world begins to manifest this kind of love of enemies, that draws people to God. It causes God to be glorified greatly in the world. And so, in light of this earthly, heavenly distinction, we end this section with the words of verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We will never achieve this. We will never achieve perfection in this life. Some Christian traditions think that you can. That you can be perfectly, well, perfect. You can be holy, perfectly holy and perfect in this life. No, we will always be praying in poverty of spirit that God would fill us with a hunger and thirst for righteousness, that he would fill us with righteousness. We will always be praying, forgive us our trespasses until the end, until the last day. We will never be perfect. But by God's grace and because we belong to him, will we pursue it? That's the question that I think Jesus leaves us with as we come to the end of chapter five of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Our good Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this setting before us true God-like love. Thank you for setting before us this goal of perfection that awakens us out of our sloth and that causes us to face our own inabilities and causes us to see that how much we need prayer, how much we need grace, how much we need your empowerment every day, that you do not, you do not call us to some, some easy life, but you call us to pursue perfection and you empower us every day toward that end. God, help us to see this and to know this and through all of this to love people, to love not just our own, to love not just those who treat us nicely, and respect us, but to treat those who trample on us. Help us, Lord, to love our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.